Good morning once again. You couldn't see from the back, but we are just enjoying Charlie Crumb. He looks like one of those British soldiers as he's doing the offering. And there's Jill trying to get him to break his composure. Awesome. All right. So good morning once again. Like I said, let's go ahead and invite uh, I want to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word to the book of Luke again. Uh, If you don't have your own copy, there should be one in the pew in front of you there. We're in Luke chapter 2. We're going to be covering verses uh, 32 through 35 this morning and continuing to look at the testimony of the man we came to know as Simeon. This will end this section this week, and then next week we're going to pick up with another uh, faithful woman named Anna. So Luke chapter 2, verses 32 through 35. We're going to read 25 through 35 this morning. And uh, hopefully this all makes coherent sense with everything that happened yesterday with the uh, Elizabeth was in the hospital again yesterday for, I don't know, 12 hours or something crazy with the, we've we've come to call it the chicken going to get you virus. It's the chikagunya virus. Uh, So we'll see here. Luke chapter 2, we're going to read verses 25 through 35 this morning. And I invite you all to stand if you're able to for the reading of God's word. 25 through 35 of Luke 2. God's word says this, And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We just pray this morning that it would instruct us and it would nourish us and exhort us into holier living for you and your kingdom. Help us to understand, help our our minds to be focused on what you have to say to us this morning through your word. We just praise you and thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, last week we began uh, establishing that Luke was writing here in such a way to bring witness after witness into the courtroom, if you will, of those who were around before, during, and after the birth of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were called in sequential order so that they could all bear witness to the exact truth to his most excellent Theophilus and you and I, so that we would know that Jesus was exactly who everyone said he was. He was bearing witness to the way, the truth, and the life, right? 
And so we really have to pause for a moment really quickly here and think about a really fundamental, a really basic question. How do you determine truth? How do you determine that something's right or wrong? Well, there's essentially three tests for propositional truth. And you younger people need to understand this as you think about this and write this down. And some of you older people probably have never even considered this. But how do you know that something that someone says is true? Well, there's basically, to the, the most basic level, there's three questions. There's three tests, all right? Number one is the test of correspondence. The test of correspondence. Correspondence means that if I tell you that there's 58 steps to the top of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., you can actually go there and you can walk up those stairs and count and see that there is exactly 58 steps to the Lincoln Memorial. It corresponds with what I am telling you. Okay? It's correspondence. What I say is what actually is. This would be called empirical evidence. Okay? Number two, your second test. You got correspondence. The next thing you got is coherence. The test of coherence. Does what I'm telling you make sense? So, for example, if I told you that Sally ate a chocolate fudge sickle and the last one in the freezer, and Sally was the only one that was in the home at the time, and Sally really absolutely loved chocolate fudge sickles, and that she had eaten all the chocolate fudge sickles before then, you would conclude that Sally probably ate the last fudge sickle, right? It makes sense. And so we've got the test of coherence. Does what I'm telling you make sense? Essentially, this is where laws of logic and thinking come into play. This is, is there logical consistency in what I'm telling you? And if Sally showed up and she had a chocolate ring around her lips and on her hands, right? You'd have both coherence and correspondence, right? Both of them together. And then finally, your last test. So you have coherence correspondence, and then you have pragmatics. Does it work? Is, does there, is there experiential relevancy in what I'm telling you? So if Sally ate that last popsicle and she had that chocolate ring around her mouth and she was the only one home at the time and she loved popsicles, then guess what? The practical reality for you is that you are not getting a popsicle, okay? There's experiential reality there for you. So we've got correspondence, coherence, and pragmatics. Now, if you got all three, guess what? You got the truth. But we must understand the also that the nature of truth is exclusive. It separates. Okay. In other words, if some other guy came along to you and he said, hey, there's 22 steps up to the Lincoln Memorial. And I said, no, there's 58 steps. One of us is right and one of us is wrong. We both can't be right in the same sense at the same time. There's no logical consistency. You can verify it empirically. So what does that all have to do with Jesus Christ in the book of Luke? What does all that mean? Very simply, Luke is demonstrating to us the test of truth in the multitude of witnesses that he's bringing forth in this text so that you and I can know exactly that Jesus is who the scriptures say that he is. Was there something incredible and unique about the birth of this particular child out of all children ever born to any woman everywhere? 
Well, Luke is saying to us this. He's saying, listen to Mary's testimony. He's saying, listen to Zacharias and Elizabeth's testimony. He's saying, listen to the shepherds. Listen to Simeon and what he has to say. Listen to Anna next week. They're all testifying to the truth that this child was none other than Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. That he was the foretold and promised Messiah and Savior of the world. So why should you trust Luke? Why do we trust what he says? Well, we've also got Matthew, Mark, and John as well that give us some examples and testimony about who Jesus Christ was. We've got Moses and the Psalms and the prophets. We have the entirety of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation that bears witness to the very fact that Jesus was Savior, Christ, and Lord. And then we've got the multitude of believers today. And even ourselves, you people in here today, that tell us that there is experiential relevance to the gospel message. That there was some absolutely great significance in the birth of this child. We've been through this before. The multitude of hospitals because of the gospel. The elevation of the status of women and children because of the gospel. The value and the dignity of human life elevated because of the gospel. The sanctity of monogamous marriage being brought forth because of the gospel. And we could go on and on and on. The lives changed. Charities, relief organizations, and so on and so forth, all because of the birth of this child 2,000 years ago. And I want to challenge you, you take an atheist and you go out in the United States of America, you find me a hospital or a relief organization named after Charles Darwin or Richard Dawkins. You're not going to find one. Atheists don't do that kind of stuff. So, last week, we began to look at this testimony of one of those witnesses. And that was the man we came to know as Simeon. And we noted that he was looking for the consolation or the comfort of Israel, right? He had an eschatological, he was looking forward to this Redeemer coming. We established that from Genesis 3.15 all the way through the Old Testament. We learn that we don't know much about him by way of his vocation or background or any of those things, but by inference, we could gather that he was possibly an older man because he says that since he has seen this Jesus, this baby, he can die. There's nothing else he needs. There's no other earthly ambitions that he wants to accomplish, but just that he can now die in peace because he has seen the Prince of Peace. It says that he was righteous and devout in verse 25. Righteous in the sense that he lived in such a way that his faith in God allowed him to have righteousness imputed to him. And then also it says that he was devout, meaning that he had a healthy fear of God. He was reverent. He wasn't a two-faced person. He was a Jew inwardly and not merely one outwardly. We also saw that he had this incredibly unique experience that he was told by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Christ. Now, we don't know exactly how that transpired. We don't know how that happened, but he received some sort of divine revelation that he would get to see the promised Redeemer. It was a very special privilege. It was very unique in the fact that the Holy Spirit would be the one that would intersect, excuse me, that he would orchestrate the intersection of Simeon and Jesus to come about in the temple on that very day. It was a divinely appointed place and a divinely appointed time. 
And incredibly as well, it doesn't say that Simeon was given any identifying information about Jesus, about what he would look like. Remember, the shepherds were told, you're going to find this baby in a manger. Simeon doesn't have that here. But God sovereignly ordains the time and the place of the meeting between Simeon and Jesus. So as Simeon sees this 40-day-year-old child, or 40-day-old child, rather, and he takes Jesus into his arms, his heart is just overwhelmed that he just breaks forth in praise and adoration to God. And why wouldn't he? Why would he not do that? He had been looking forward to this day from what the Holy Spirit had revealed to him and to what he knew of the Old Testament scriptures about the Messiah, he probably just had tears of joy streaming down his face because of this very exhilarating moment. And that's the way it is with a lot of us sometimes, isn't it? We have a lot of joy and we have a lot of passion and zeal for the Lord when we come to first know the grace of God. But over time, we seem to wane, and we seem to wander a bit, don't we? And that's why it is so critical for us to be in the church. There's no such thing in the Bible as Lone Ranger Christians. Have you ever heard someone say that all I need is the Bible, Jesus, and myself, and I don't need the church? Like the church is some big Western cultural idea of corporate power and greed. But guess what? Do you know who Christ is coming back for? He's coming back for his bride, the church, the called-out body of believers. And Paul answered the question as to whether you can fly solo without the church by using it as an illustration of the body. We see that in 1 Corinthians 12. The eye can't just get up and leave, and the hand can't just walk away or whatever. We're to be together. This, this place of all places, should be a place where your soul is nourished on a weekly basis. We need to be constantly reminded of God's grace. We need to be constantly reminded of God's goodness and the holiness of God and the compassion of God. The church of all places in the entire world is where that should happen. When you hear the gospel for the first time, you know what you need to hear again the next week? The gospel. You know what you need to hear the next week? The gospel. Because we start to tell ourselves we're not good enough. It's not upon our achievement. It's because of what Christ has done. We regularly need the gospel preached to our souls. And Simeon knew of the good news of salvation through the Messiah. And he got to see him with his very own eyes and touch him with his own hands. So in our text, let's get a little deeper here. First of all, in his outburst of praise, it says in verse 32 that Jesus will be a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. So what is a Gentile, or better yet, who is a Gentile? A Gentile is someone who is not Jewish. And that would basically include you and me in this room. And this is a remarkable statement here by Simeon, if you consider it. Because what he is saying is that this Messiah, the Jewish Redeemer, is going to be a Redeemer for the Gentiles as well. Now, this would have been a complete shock to the Jewish people because they saw Gentiles as someone who was lower than a shepherd. They were despised. They were infidels because they were really considered to have contributed to the demise of their nation. It surely wasn't their fault. It had to be those awful, nasty Gentiles. But a Jew, they weren't even supposed to be a guest in a Gentile home. 
And they certainly weren't supposed to invite a Gentile into their home. Even the dirt, get this, the dirt from a Gentile country, as you came through it, the dirt was considered unclean because it came from a Gentile nation. And so if you were traveling as a Jew through a Gentile nation, what you're supposed to do is you got to that edge, you took off your shoes and you wipe that dust off there. You get that nasty stuff out of there. They were hated and despised by the Jews. But Jews and Gentiles, essentially, they butted heads for centuries. There was a lot of animosity between the two groups. Even in Acts 11, when Peter went to the Gentiles, the Jews in Jerusalem were mortified because he went to the Gentiles. But when the Holy Spirit came upon the men there, Peter concluded in verse 17, he said, Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as we, he gave to also, us also, after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when the the Jews in in Jerusalem heard this, it says they quieted down and they glorified God. And they said, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Even in Matthew 18, when Jesus is giving instructions for church discipline, in verse 15 he says, if your brother sins, you go show him his fault in private. And if he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen then, tell it to the church. Right? Progressive discipline. And if he refuses even to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So there was a lot of animosity between Jew and Gentile. But it wasn't as if God's plan of salvation was exclusively only to Israel. Listen to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. It says, But there will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious. By the way of the seed on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee. To the Gentiles, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine in them, or on them rather. Speaking of the Messiah, in Isaiah 42, 6, it says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will point you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. Jesus Christ would not only come for the nation of Israel, but he would come to be a light for the nations, including the Gentiles. But salvation through the Lord Jesus would be available for Jew and Gentile alike. Listen to the good news from Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, Listen to this. Remember that you were at a time separate from Christ. You were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's a pretty grim situation for us as Gentiles to be in. But that's not where it stops. There's hope. Listen to this. But now in Christ Jesus, verse 13, you who were formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one, and he broke down the barrier of that dividing wall 
by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both into one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. God came and at his death in the, in the person of Jesus Christ brought together Jew and Gentile. That's good news for us. But what about the Messiah being the glory of your people, Israel? What is so good about that? Well, it was through Israel that the Messiah would come. Essentially, the roots of salvation extend into the nation of Israel. The glory, the covenants, the promises, the temple service, and all of that, from whom is Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all, is what Roman 9 tells us. And then we see the reaction to this from Joseph and Mary in verse 33. Look at your text. It says, And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And why wouldn't they be? There's just been this continual onslaught of wonder about who this baby boy is going to be. And by all appearances, he looks like a healthy, bouncing baby boy. But the things that just keep happening and continually be filling their heart with wonder as to who he would turn out to be. And I think this word amazed here has to be a little bit of an understatement, especially when you consider the flurry of activity that has surrounded his birth. I mean, here they are in the temple just being obedient to the law. And this old guy comes up and he holds their baby and he says that he has seen salvation. He has seen the light of revelation to the Gentiles. I mean, your mind must have been spinning. But the next few things that Simeon says might be a little bit more disconcerting for these new parents. So in verse 34, it says, And Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the rise and fall of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So whatever excitement, whatever joy and wonder they were feeling here, whatever euphoria, they had had to be just abruptly tempered by his last comments here. Now, first of all, he offers them a blessing, but then he directs his comments to Mary specifically. And why is that? Well, in the gospel accounts, after we don't really hear much about Joseph after Luke 2, 41 through 51. And then when we do hear about Mary, it's usually she's by herself whenever she appears in the gospel accounts. So we can assume or by inference that Joseph must have passed away at some point. But he says that this child will be appointed for the rise and fall of many in Israel. So either they will accept his claims to who he is, and where he came from, and what he's going to do, or they wouldn't. There's going to be a separation, if you will, similar to the nature of truth that we talked about earlier. Truth, by nature, by definition, excludes and separates. And so when Jesus says that he is the truth, that's exactly what he's going to do. He's going to separate. But this is what John says in his gospel in John 1, 11 through 13. It says, he came to his own, and those who were his own, did not receive him. 
But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Peter, in 1 Peter 2, 6-8, says this, For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you, those for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumbled because they were disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were appointed. Jesus came to separate. He said this of himself. In Luke chapter 12, or chapter 12, verse 51, and he says, Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. So not only would Gentiles now be grafted into the promises, but then a majority of the Jews are going to reject him and cry out for his crucifixion. And it's at this point that Simeon's words are going to ring true. Mary she would see her own son's crucifixion, his suffering, his anguish, all the hatred, the mockings, the crown of thorns, all the reviling against him. She would witness it. Listen to John chapter 19. He says, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, He said to his mother, woman, behold your son. One can only imagine the anguish that Mary would have felt at that moment. And what Luke may have lacked in saying that the parents were amazed at the things that were being said, I think we can all agree that to watch your child be crucified there is nothing else that we could come up to, to adequately describe this than better than to say that a sword would pierce our soul. The emotional pain that she would have suffered would have been incredible. And to see your son hanging there on a cross, even conversing with you as he's bloody and beaten, would have been absolutely devastating. If you've never heard a mother wail, at the loss of a child, let me tell you from experience, it's something that you will never forget. They are inconsolable wailing, and their agony is something that I hope none of you ever have to go through, but it will rip your heart out. But then finally, the interaction with Simeon ends with, to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he constantly revealed men's hearts, from the woman at the well, to the Pharisees, to Nicodemus, to Peter's future denial, to Judas Iscariot's betrayal. Jesus always knew exactly what was in the heart of man. He understood well the depravity of mankind. And as you know, this doctrine, the depravity of man, this is the most intellectually resisted doctrine, but the most empirically resisted verifiable argument that we could ever make. If you just watched TV in the last couple weeks and you see these guys with their short little knives, the ISIS, 
you can verify empirically that the depravity of man exists in this world. I just watched a video, a little sidetrack here, of Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan was the guy on PBS, right? He did the whole outer space thing, and this guy at the firehouse shows me. He says, hey, watch this video. And so Carl Sagan is making the argument, look how vast our space is. Look how big. We're on this little blue dot. And all that's true. But he concludes at the end with, can't we all just get along? Can't we all just live in the reality that uh, we're all here together? We're in this little blue ball and this great vastness of space. And so when the video got done, I asked the guy, how do you do that when you have the depravity of man? Look at ISIS. Look at these guys beheading people. How can we all get along? One person will tell you, uh, love your neighbor. The other one's going to tell you, I eat my neighbor. Who do you side with? You can't just internally choose goodness for goodness sake. This isn't Victoria Osteen again. Just be good for yourself, right? So Jesus Christ, he understood well the depravity of man. But Jesus knew exactly what was in the heart of man when he talks in John 3, 19 through 21. He said, this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. We see that all the time on the news. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Time and time again, Jesus constantly called out the whitewashed tombs of the Pharisees. And what he was constantly trying to get at was that there was an issue of the heart They had a very pious and a very religious outward experience and appearance. But every time that Jesus spoke to them, he was revealing the true problem that resided in the heart. Again, in Matthew 5.21, he says, You have heard from the ancients, you were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty of fiery hell. It's from the inside that these murderous thoughts come from. Again, in Matthew 5, 27, he says, you have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery in his heart. So how is your heart this morning? Do you not know that there is absolutely not one chamber of your heart that God does not want completely control of? Is there something that you are holding on to this morning that you just can't seem to let go? Where is your heart? In the Beatitudes of Matthew 5, Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. He said in Mark 7, 21 and 23, that which proceeds out of a man, that is what defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adultery, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit and sensuality, envy, slander, pride and foolishness. And these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. So again... I ask you this morning, as you come face to face with Jesus Christ, how is your heart? 
Are your affections, affections such that your greatest desire and your greatest goal is the upward call in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you taking every thought captive and bringing them into the conformity of Christ? Are you running in such a way that you will win the prize? Are you presenting your body as a living sacrifice that is holy and acceptable to God? Are you loving God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all your mind and all your strength? How long will you waver between two opinions? If God is God and he is the Lord, then serve him. But if Baal, serve him. You may say, Matt, you don't understand the nature of my sin. You don't understand the depths. You don't understand how deep my sin goes. Let me tell you something. There's one thing that I do know, and that we serve a God with broad shoulders. We serve a God that is more than able to bear the weight of your sin and mine. There is not one chamber of your heart that God doesn't want, and there is not one dark corner that his light is not going to reveal. There is not one drop of his precious blood of the Lamb that will not atone for whatever, whatever sin your heart may try to contrive. So how is your heart this morning? Let's pray. Father, as we come face to face with the Word of God, it's very revealing. It's like a mirror. Your Word tells us that our face is dirty. But only you, Lord, can separate our sin as far as the east is from the west and cast it into the sea of forgetfulness. Your grace is sufficient, Lord. Help us to surrender all things to you. Help our heart to be just full of your glory. Help us to reflect your goodness. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for this Simeon as an example to us as he looked forward to the Messiah. And Lord, we know that you've come once, but you are coming again. And so help us to be looking forward and living in such a way that we do not have to shrink back at your coming. We just pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.